0: Welcome to this Peer Voice panel discussion on diagnosing inherited retinal dystrophies. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Professors Dominic Fisher and Robert McLaren and an additional discussion of case scenarios with Professors Robert McLaren and Graham Black. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Right, hello. Um, I'm Robert McLaren. I'm from the University of Oxford in the UK. And I'm Graham Black from the University of Manchester in the UK. And today we're going to discuss patient cases, scenarios and explore the practicalities and considerations in providing a genetic diagnosis for patients with inherited retinal disease. And what we want to try to illustrate is an integrated approach that encompasses detailed phenotyping, early molecular genomic diagnosis, alongside an awareness of family history, and show how this can accelerate achieving a clinical molecular diagnosis to improve patient management and, importantly, also treatment patients with inherited retinal disease so we want to start with a case and this is a classic case of a young um, adolescent boy seen in the genetic clinic who presented um, in early school years with difficulties in dim light and also importantly difficulties at school seeing whiteboards um, seeing screens He'd already been seen by his optician or optometrist and referred to an ophthalmologist who had seen uh, retinal pigmentation and therefore suspected an inherited retinal disease. Um, let's have a look at the family history. And uh, Robert, I wonder if you could just um, go through the, the important issues from your point of view um, and, and your thoughts.
1: Yes, uh, thank you, Graham, and thank you very much for that very, very clear introduction. Um, Here we've got a family history with two affected boys. Uh, The the dark squares show that the uh, patients are affected. Um, The open circles are women who are unaffected, and the open squares, of course, unaffected males. So we don't really have any family history going back beyond uh, these two uh, males. And so we can really consider possibly any genetic mode of inheritance. It could be recessive. uh, It could be dominant, but not fully penetrant. Uh, It could even be mitochondrial as being passed from the mother to the two boys. But I think with anything like this where one has two boys and, uh, who are affected, it's very important to consider the possibility of an x linked inherited disease. Obviously, it would be important to find out, for instance, if the mother's father had any retinitis pigmentosa or possibly the mother's mother. But don't forget that an x linked disease can pass through the female line and be
0: relatively asymptomatic until it hits males. And so, um, having considered a, a family history and... Not all of us um, will take a family history routinely. Um, Patient needs to be examined and imaged. This is very interesting imaging. Um, On the
1: left, you've got the autofluorescence. And what you can see is that there's the sort of darkish black spots in the mid-periphery. Classically, we would call this the bone spicule changes, although I do prefer the term pigmentary retinopathy. Uh, And that is sort of in the equatorial region. It's not customary to what people think it's starting very, very anterior. It's more equatorial. And then on top of that, we've got a relatively healthy looking sort of area around the optic disc, but in the very center, you can see a fluorescence ring. And this fluorescent ring, again, is very suggestive of a ciliopathy type retinal degeneration where We've noted that the ring corresponds to the edge of the degeneration as the photoreceptors are losing the outer segments. So in conclusion, I would probably say this is a sort of a rod cone dystrophy uh, caused by a gene that has an important role in the cilium, based on the appearance of the retina.
0: And you, you mentioned that it's important to consider family history and think about X-linked RP. Um, and of course, uh, examination of female carriers, the mother in this case, is absolutely crucial. Um, and this is her autofluorescence imaging. And
1: this shows the the star shape of the reflex, sometimes called tapetal reflexes, something that can be seen in, in animals that have a special membrane for night vision. Uh, but effectively, what this represents is the X inactivation pattern in photoreceptors as the posterior pole of the retina grows out pulling the clones into these sort of star shape, where you've got normal and abnormal cells. So, I mean, this is very pathogmonic of an X-linked uh, disease. Of course, it, it could be one of the two common forms that we see on the X chromosome. But this, for me, would be very reassuring, it, particularly if I had an equivocal genetic diagnosis. This would be very reassuring
0: that we're dealing with an X-linked inheritance. And it underlines why examining family members um, is so crucial. Yeah, absolutely, Graham. And so... Alongside um, clinical examination, we need to think about uh, genetic testing. And early genetic testing, early in the, um, in the clinical pathway, I think is what is expected now. Um, and that requires a discussion about the implications um, for the individual, for family members, um, what, the, what the possible outcomes might be Given that we don't know the diagnosis, it's possible that this could be syndromic, and so that needs to be discussed. And genetic testing can be undertaken in a a range of different ways. So the genomic era has been uh, driven by technology, and we can see testing that can focus on the whole genome. We can think about whole exome sequencing of the coding sequences of all of the genes within the genome, or just a gene panel. It's not the technology that matters I think so much as considering early genomic testing which will help us to provide a precise molecular diagnosis. Robert you'd mentioned that this was likely to be X-linked RP and here we have a result uh, a variant in a gene called RPGR I think it's fair to say that many ophthalmologists won't be terribly familiar with the sort of annotation that's seen here. RPGR, the commonest of the genes causing X-linked RP, and uh, the Human Genomic Variation Society description that shows a C number for the cDNA and a P number for the protein. And this shows a substitution of one amino acid um, Mm -hmm glycine for another serine at position 60 and the, the laboratory felt that this was a variant of unknown significance that's to say we couldn't interpret it and i don't know about you robert but that's that's not an uncommon scenario
1: no um exactly graham i mean a lot of people think that the genetic testing is the ultimate diagnosis uh, but quite often, as you know, you do the genetic test and you end up with potentially two or three different diagnoses because they're often far from
0: clear. Yeah. And, and what we're trying to do here is to take um, an integration of the family history, the genomic data and the phenotypic data. Um, and generally, we do that within a multidisciplinary team meeting. Um, we have these to discuss all of the variants of unknown significance that we see. And the aim there is to see whether there is evidence that can support uh, suggesting that this is causal. And so, in this case, the, l- the laboratory had initially relatively little information about the family history and the phenotype. However, the family history and, and I, I believe also the segregation in both the affected males had been undertaken. And then secondly, as you said, the, the phenotype in, in the mother was virtually pathognomonic of X-linked RP. That radial pattern of X-inactivation is very characteristic and the discussion in the MDT pushed that over towards it being likely pathogenic. and. That's important because um, we can now start to think about disease management, remembering that this isn't now about research. genomics was always about research, but this is about improving management, uh, facilitating family decision making, understanding prognosis for individuals who are planning their 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 lives and their education, and then importantly, of course, um, for clinical trials as well.
1: Yeah, well, um, obviously, that's really why people come and see us, Graham, is because they want to know if anything can be done. Uh, And thankfully, uh, due to medical advances, we now have gene therapy programs up and running for a number of inherited retinal degenerations, which in our time, when we were learning ophthalmology as residents, would have been unheard of, to, to be frank with you. So it's very exciting. It won't necessarily bring back the dead cells, but we hope in the long term as well that it will slow down the retinal degeneration and therefore provide at least some benefit to these patients who are affected. Shall we look at another case, Graham? I've got another case here which we can discuss, um, similar, inherited retinal degeneration, but in this case, a few subtle differences. So in this case, we've got poor vision from birth, um, obviously reduced visual acuity, uh, poor night vision, and nystagmus and you know the vision impairment is quite severe so should I put you on the spot Graham and ask what gene you think might fit this criteria?
0: So I'd I'd certainly say that this is um, amongst the the spectrum of conditions that we might call Labour's congenital amaurosis and the the key here I think is the early night blindness um, which is quite suggestive Um, and certainly we would want to exclude Um, RPE65 as um, a a possible diagnosis, I think.
1: Well, exclude or include? I mean, I think obviously... Rather include, yes. uh, RP 65 enzyme is involved with regeneration of the visual pigments that are needed for your photoreceptors to function, and the deficiency of the RP 65
0: does give this very characteristic, almost absence of night vision from a very early stage. Again, what we're going to undertake is... uh, phenotyping, detailed phenotyping, um, and if we're thinking about uh, labors amaurosis and RPE65 disease, what sort of um, features are you looking for on imaging, Robert? And of
1: course the imaging can be difficult because we're hopefully diagnosing these early in life with children are not necessarily that cooperative and certainly don't like a bright light being shone in their eye they may also have nystagmus as well which can be a challenge. You may see issues with small dots if you look at very high power and some of the the colour images which represent the all transretinal ester accumulations within the RPE, uh, but generally you can expect to see a relatively advanced degeneration. Uh, you may also have changes relating to myopia. All of these patients are highly myopic and there may be myopic changes on top of the fundal picture, but I would say above all it would be the absence of autofluorescence and make sure that your imaging team uh, puts those images on the server so you can refer back to them because quite often they'll
0: dismiss them because they can't get a clear picture. And that's going to be absolutely crucial, again, when it comes to um, interpreting genomic variants. So here we have, again, early genetic testing, trying to provide a a precise uh, clinical molecular diagnosis. This is the the gene RPE65. And two variants, the number with a, a P before it, shows two amino acid substitutions. Uh, this patient was tested with both parents, a so-called trio, and we can uh, immediately go back and demonstrate that one variant came from either parent. That's to say that these are carried on separate copies of the RPE65 genome chromosome 1. And one of those is likely pathogenic, um, but one is uh, of lesser known significance and there I think again it's this MDT process isn't it Robert about how we interpret the variants, in particular in the context of the phenotype.
1: Yeah absolutely and I shouldn't underestimate what a huge responsibility it is to make a decision to apply genetic treatment to a patient. And we must, above all else, do everything we can to make sure that, that diagnosis is correct and there's every possible opportunity to eliminate any errors. And this is one of the great advantages of an MDT team, is that there'll be people in that team who'll look at things slightly differently to oneself and give additional validation of the genetic diagnosis. Not everyone, unfortunately, is eligible for gene therapy. Um, obviously, we have to confirm that the gene is correct, but even then, there may sadly be patients in whom the disease is so advanced, there's really no benefit to gene therapy. Um, obviously patients need to be aware of the treatment and they need to have informed consent as we've already seen but fortunately so far the criteria for applying gene therapy are fairly broad and we've seen good improvements at all levels of vision so far and I would say the majority of patients who have the correct diagnosis genetically will then go on to have successful gene therapy. And It's a very exciting time at the moment there are many clinical trials ongoing. A lot of the clinical trials were temporarily halted during the COVID uh, crisis, but these are all now back online and it'll be a very exciting future coming up.
0: Indeed, and, and patients need to be confident that their, um, their ability to enter clinical trials or to access treatments is as great as it possibly can be. And that, that carries with it now a responsibility for general ophthalmologists, For those that see inherited eye diseases and for clinical geneticists alike.
1: Yeah, those are very good points, Graham. Thank you very much indeed. As always, it's it's a pleasure chatting with you about genetics. Thank you.
0: This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.